0: Okay, let's take our Bibles again this morning and turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to be looking this morning at verse number 19 and 20 this morning. Hebrews chapter 10. If you notice in your bulletin, the title of my message is The Lettuce Bowl of Scripture. The reason why I have that there is because this is known as the lettuce bowl of Scripture. In this sense, in verse number 22, it says, let us draw near. Verse 23, let us hold fast. Verse 24, let us consider how. See, that's the lettuce. But it does also indicate a shift in this section of Hebrews. In other words, I've just gotten done moving through a large doctrinal section of Hebrews. Not that there was not practical things in there, but here is the shift. Now we come to the practice of the doctrine. He took ten and a half chapters to get to the practice. He laid the theological foundation before you ever do anything. Because when you do something... You ought to do it with a correct understanding of what the Bible says about it so you do it correctly and you do it consistently. So this is the how all the teaching is related to our daily lives as followers of Christ. You see, acknowledging Jesus' lordship with our lips just alone is not useful if the practice of such truth is not evident in our life, it's not just the professing faith, it's a doing faith. If you have faith, show me. Show me your faith. Show me you're redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. So, here, in what is called the lettuce bowl of Scripture, it links doctrine with deeds. There has been, so far in the book of Hebrews, an insistence on correct thinking, correct teaching. Now there is an exhortation on consistent behavior. In other words, the teaching of Scripture not only needs to be received by us, but it also needs to be appropriated by us. That becomes very important, not only on Hebrews, in all the books of the Bible in the epistles especially, gives this admonition, okay, now you know this, now do this. Now, how are we to do that? Well, Scripture, again, doesn't leave us alone guessing, thank the Lord for that. The rest of chapter 10 is broken up into two parts. The first part is an exhortation and encouragement part. The second part is is a warning part. And it will be the last major warning in the book of Hebrews. In the first part, we are given four appropriate responses to the preceding doctrines in the last ten and a half chapters of Hebrews. So believers are exhorted and encouraged to action. And the reason why is because they possess something. They possess something they did not possess before. They do not possess it because they earned it. Nor do they have it because they deserve it. They possess it by divine favor and grace, period. That's how they possess it. In chapter 10, verse number 19, it says, Therefore, brethren, since we have. You know what that says? We have? We have something. We have something we didn't have before. The great and grand truth, which is for all of God's children, is that based on the one-time sacrifice of Jesus Christ, God forgets our sins and violations of His law, and He doesn't just cover them, He purges them from us forever. That's why we ended in verse number 18. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. By Christ's full and final expiation of all sins, for all time, believers are made right, before a holy and a just God, and given continual access to God. We never had that before. And I want to remind you that expiation, big word, theologic word, but you ought to know it, remember, is that word that means something done in view to me, in view of the believer, the expiation of my sin. In other words, my sin exits from me My sin is removed from me, from the believer, and the punishment is removed from me and given to Christ. So Christ removes my sin forever, and He pays the price for my sin so I can be set free. I never had that before. Now I have it. That changes everything. All the dynamics of your life should change because of that. So, see, because of that, now I can actually live for God. Now I can actually be a believer, a follower of Christ. Now why am I saying all this again? Well, it's because these objective truths must be firmly embedded in your mind and your heart if you are going to carry out the exhortations. In other words... To carry out the exhortations, you must have confidence in the doctrines taught about Jesus Christ. Look at verse number 19 again. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, the confidence we have is based on objective truth. Now, if someone comes up to you, and ask you, how do you know you're a Christian? What would you say to them? Sometimes we say this: "Well, I feel like I'm a Christian. I know in my heart I'm a believer." That's usually the answer you get. I, I, I know, and that's actually that's not a bad answer, but it's not the whole answer. See, there is a very subjective, that's a very subjective answer, and it is a, in a very real sense, our faith does have a subjective nature to it. It must have a subjective nature to it, but our feelings must be constantly fed by and challenged by the objective foundation which informs my confidence. Because you're going to find out as we go through Hebrews, this word confidence really means faith in. And that's why he's working up to Hebrews chapter 11, which is the great faith chapter. And all these people had confidence in what they believed first before they ever did anything for God. And even in chapter 11, died for God without having the full promise, the fulfillment of their prom- the promise in reality, knowing that it would be there once they died and went, to, went into God's presence because they understood the character and the nature of their God and the promises that He made in the New Covenant. See, this is vital for our consistent walk with the Lord. It's hard to hold fast to something subjective. Especially if your feelings are being compromised all the time. In this case, they're under the Attack of being ostracized from their home. They're suffering. Even some are losing their lives. See, our feelings are not a reliable guide. They're often fickle and wavering. Sometimes it just depends on how the weather is. Some people are not here this morning because it's raining out. And the bed was awful warm. And they were cozy. And so their mind began to think, well, I'll come up with some reason why I shouldn't, and convince themselves they ought not to go where God says you ought to be. In fact, that's where he's going to. If you look at verse 25 of chapter 10, it says, not forsaking our assembly together. See, part of believing the truth is doing the simple things God asks. Like, you, when you have church meetings, be there. That's what God says. I don't say that. God says that. See, it can't be what a person says. It's got to be what God says through his word. I didn't write this. The Holy Spirit wrote this. But see, we don't always take things seriously written in the word of God. Simple things like be there. And don't make excuses why you shouldn't be there when you're just fine. Because you're going to get up tomorrow for work. And, oh, wow, I'm go to work because I've got to make money. I've got to pay the bills. But see, you don't realize when you put God first, God takes care of the things that often cause you anxiety and worry. Right? See, that's the Matthew 6.33. Seek first the kingdom of God, and he'll add unto you all the things that the Gentiles worry about. Clothing, food, where am I going to work, what kind of, how am I going to pay my bills? See, we often worry about those because we're not putting God first. You're first, your job's first, money's first, but not God. See, that's what faith is all about. Faith is trusting God and trusting His Word. And when we do that, we're going to find out, I can't trust my feelings. So see, there must be that objective ground and basis on which our confidence rests. You may ask, well, what do you mean? I mean a confidence that embraces all that we have in Christ. That's something that forms really the objective content of our confidence and our hope. In other words, doctrine will inform our thoughts, which will inform our feelings and emotions, which will inform our doing. So follow your heart is bad theology. And following follow your feelings is worse. But that's what you get in movies and Hollywood and all over the place. Follow truth. Truth that comes from God and it'll never steer you wrong, ever. It'll never steer you wrong. You stay on the path of truth and the path of truth will make you strong. It'll make you discerning. It'll make you Courageous. Because this word confidence also is translated in the King James Bible, boldness. It will give you boldness in your faith. Nobody will be able to move you from where you're at because the truth is in your heart. The truth guides your mind. The truth glorifies God. The truth helps you to know what God wants you to do. And because of that, you grow strong. Like in the book of Hebrews, it already taught us that the Christ is the author of our salvation, that He will bring us many sons to glory. That includes us, that Jesus Christ has been crowned with glory and honor, that He is the heir, and we are about to inherit salvation as the co-heirs in Christ, that in Christ's expiation, in His incarnation, He joined us and made us His brothers. By His death, He has freed us from the devil, From the might of death, from the fear of death, he brings us help in the time of temptation that Christ is said in Scripture to be our Apostle and our High Priest, whom we confess, so he fills us with assurance and hope, and he fills us with the glory that awaits us at the end, that we know there's something over here that only faith sees that will be completely given to us when we're in the presence of God And we drop off these bodies. So you see, these are some of the unchanging, rock-solid, objective realities that enable us to enter into God's presence with confidence. Which in turn informs our feelings, enabling us to feel firmly confident and assures us of the realities of our faith, causing us not to waver. Not to bend with every wind of doctrine, but to stand firm. So those who profess faith in Christ will remain faithful. Thus giving evidence that they are members of Christ's household. Are you faithful? Right? That's really the question that God Is answering in your life and looking at in your life are you faithful faithful to what faithful to the truth faithful to what you know that you've learned in the word of god faithful to your profession of faith in christ faithful to the assembling together with believers faithful to the study of the word of god faithful to the practice of what you do know in your life faithful to discern good and evil, faithful to pray and love Christ and walk with him daily, faithful to do those things. Always imperfectly, but that is the direction of your life. See, that's what he's calling us to do. And these next chapters till the end of the book, it's all going to be about that. Okay, you know this, all right, you know it, do it. It starts in your heart and mind. Do it there, and it starts because you know you're saved. You know Christ has done this to you, and so now that's what gives you confidence, right? Remember, their approach to God before there was no approach to God, not in this way. So, with all that being said, there are two things that need to accompany our approach to God, but I'll only cover the first one this morning. And the first one is this: followers of jesus christ are to enter the holy place with confidence all right look at it It says in verse number 19 again it says therefore brethren that's therefore remember everything that's gone before brethren he's talking to believers since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of jesus verse 20 By a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. That's about all I'll do today. Those two verses. So you see, true believers are already, they have already confidence. In fact, the the Greek word here means, the word confidence means to have freedom of speech. Uh, It means to be fearless and cheerful in your courage that the true believer in Jesus Christ, they are exhorted to go directly into the presence of God with, actually, with free speaking. Speak freely before God. So this is, this means that, wait a minute, my confidence has something to do with me talking. To have courage before God and express Not only intercessions for other people, not only adoration to God, but express my personal needs before God. My personal struggle with sin before God. And lay it out before Him. That's what it's about. I have confidence to come before God and lay out the whole mess of my life. All the dysfunction in my life, which we all have and lay it out before him lay that lay out the sin just as it is before him lay out all the hopes and the dreams and the anxieties and the needs you have lay it out before him so this word does mean and does include us to come fearlessly in that way before God see there's a really a contrast here with The way in which people of the old covenant approach God and the way people of the new covenant approach God. In the new covenant, people approach God with a joyous and a confident heart. In the old covenant, people were cautious and fearful. In the new covenant, people are to draw near always, while Old Covenant people were frequently exhorted to keep their distance lest they be killed. All followers of Christ are urged to come in any moment of trial at any time before the throne of grace while only the high priest could enter the holiest of all and that was only once a year. So God has taken this Old Covenant where one high priest can enter in before his presence once a year to now it's open come anytime you want with no priest of course your priest is christ so you have to have a priest but it can't be a priest of your choice it has to be christ himself he is the melchizedekian high priest right he is the one that you can come so how do we show confidence well We show confidence in really five ways, which I'll not cover this morning. The first one, in verse number 19, we show confidence by entering in. Secondly, we show confidence by drawing near. Verse 22, let us draw near with a sincere heart. We show confidence by holding fast. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. We show confidence by keeping near. Look at verse 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. Keep drawing near, and then we show confidence by pressing on. Verse 36, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. So all those show confidence, that you believe the doctrines about Christ in the Word of God. And as you do that, in verse number 19, there are three aspects of redemptive love that should always be on our heart when we approach God. And this is where doctrine comes in, where it says in verse number 19, therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place, then it says this, by the blood of Jesus. So it's telling us this is how we enter, and never forget this is how you enter, that followers of Christ are entering the Holy of Holies into which under the Old Covenant people were forbidden to enter, so we enter not ignorantly, not flippantly, not carelessly, but mindfully. I have an understanding in my mind of the cost it took God to give me this awesome privilege to come into his presence anytime I want, anywhere, any any place. And what are those redemptive thoughts? Number one, it should enter your mind of the blood he shed, where it says by the blood of Jesus. That means what happened in the blood of Jesus that he bought us and paid our huge sin debt. So now we belong to him. So, because of Christ's blood, we belong to Him. Secondly, we enter mindful of the way He opened. That we're accepted in, by Him. That there, all the obstacles to come to Christ have, has been removed. And we're going to look at that in a, in a minute. So we come mindful of the way He opened. That there's no person... There's no church, there's no sacrament, there's nothing I have to go through, there's no routine I have to go through to enter his presence, only to be mindful of the very thing Christ did for me to get there. Third thing, redemptive thought was it should enter our mind of the work he has done and continues to do, and what is that work as the high priest? He intercedes for us, and he'll help us in our time of need right so that means god understands our weakness as human beings he understands the pain of being a human the painfulness that we experience being a human being he understands what sin does in your life and what sins of other people do in your life he understands all those things so there's nothing that you can come in your mind and think you know what i don't have to bother god with this or i don't have to God doesn't understand my situation. So how can I bring it to No, that's what the Bible is saying. That doctrine is already told me in Scripture that God understands all your needs way deeper than you do and has experienced them himself because of his suffering and his death. We already covered that in chapter 4 of Hebrews, that we're able to, see, that's got to be in your mind. Or you know what happens? You come in there and you say, well, meh. You know, why should I come? God's oh, not going to understand me anyway. Nobody understands me. I'm an outcast. I'm a loner. People don't pay attention to me. Why should God? Right? Oh, a whole bunch of other things too. And so what happens? We don't. We don't come with confidence. We back off. The scripture is saying, "Don't back off. Don't ever back off." Why? Because of what he taught you already. God's removed all these obstacles so you can come for help. Now why should we come in this manner? So that when we come before him, these three aspects of redemption may stir us to to be full of adoration and full of confession. And full of thanksgiving, all equaling worship that is pleasing to the Father. This is what the Father was was desiring all the time under the old covenant. But under the new covenant, He has it. Now, if you look at Hebrews chapter ten, verse number twenty, you will find that Jesus opened up for us a life giving way. There is two words. There in verse number 20. And it says this, by a new and a living way. It is new because no one could directly enter God's presence under the old Mosaic law. But this is a rich Greek word. Actually, it means to be freshly slaughtered. It means to be freshly killed. That's the word he uses there for new. And it means not only in the sense that it is the way that was not known before and now it is known, but also it means this. As one that retains its freshness and cannot grow old. That means the sacrifice of Jesus Christ retains its freshness and could never grow old. That's what the word means. You see, although His sacrifice for our sins was once and for all offered over 2,000 years ago, it never grows old, but it's always fresh and current for all who come to receive it. And for believers, His shed blood is a continual fountain of cleansing for all who appropriate it for their sins. That's why we come. You, You have to come and know the hebrews is heading in this direction you want to come you realize you want to wow this great privilege god's given me to come into his presence why don't we take advantage of it more it also says in verse 20 it is living because the way provides life for believers and continual access to god that's what it does this also means that all other ways are dead ways. This is the living way. This is the only living way. And all other ways are dead ends. There's no other way. Again, the exclusive nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a dead end to go any other way to, to try to approach God. You can't do it. This is the only fresh and living way. There's no other way. See, it, always, it also tells us here in verse number 20 that all this access to God, was, how, how all this access to God was accomplished. And look what it says in verse, the last part of verse 20, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. So everything ended here for the old covenant and everything began or begins here for the new covenant people right here at this spot at the exact time of jesus death on the cross at the ninth hour it says in scripture that's 3 p.m in the afternoon the heavy temple veil was rent into hundreds of people were there that morning that afternoon when uh, in the temple area the priests were busy Preparing the sacrifices and doing everything they had to do for the evening sacrifice. It must have been amazing. To have been there when God tore the huge veil from top to bottom. The empty room of the Holy Holy stood wide open before the priest. Now, take your Bible for a minute. Look at Mark chapter 15. Verse thirty three to thirty nine, because this is where Mark records. It's recorded in other Gospels, but this is where Mark records it. Remember, when we're thinking about when we're thinking about the Holy of Holies, there was remember the Holy Place that was the first place you went into in the Tabernacle. That's where all the priests ministered every day, right? But it was the Holy of Holies that only the high priest can go in once a year. Well, he's talking about. In this passage, in Hebrews, he's talking about the Holy of Holies, where we can go in all the time. Now, look what it says in Mark 15, verse 33. It says, When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, what? Which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he is calling Elijah. Someone ran and filled the sponge with sour wine, but it put it on a reed and gave him him a drink, saying, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And in verse number 38 of Mark 15, and the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, was standing right in front of him, saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. See, this is where God ended it all. I know I said in one message that 70 A.D., the sacrifice, whole sacrificial system ended, but this is where it ended right here. On the cross, everything ended for the old system. And in the new system, everything began. So we have the privilege to know that through the atoning blood of Jesus, the true high priest, had opened the way into God's presence. That's why it says in verse 20, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is, or i.e., his flesh. See, this is what we know. That the torn veil is a picture of the torn body of Christ who made it possible for us to worship Him at the throne of God. The same hand that tore the veil in the temple from top to bottom tore Jesus' body on our behalf. Even Isaiah 53, verse 10 says, But the Lord was pleased to crush Him. What a word. Putting Him to grief if he would render himself a guilt offering that's what it says in Isaiah 53 the first part of verse number 10 see this is what we know that god through christ's body tore that opening between us and god it's done now forever because he was the final sacrifice he was the our high priest accomplishing everything that needed to be accomplished so we can come into god's presence so What is this all talking about? Talking about this. Here's the bottom line, brethren. How we must enter the holy place of prayer. What is Christ doing in heaven now? He's interceding, right? So while we're on this side of eternity, how do we enter into the presence of God? Through prayer. Prayer is the entryway. That's why we come confidently talking Prayer means we can enter into God's presence. That's what it means. That we must really know what prayer is. That prayer is permission to enter His presence because we're forgiven. Why is prayer so important to believers? Well, having believed in Jesus Christ for salvation, believers have a new standing before God because Jesus Christ had died in their place and sacrificed in their behalf it is a standing they never had before they're able to approach god they repented and believed and were granted forgiveness of sins and now one of the components of the new covenant is you're forgiven of your sins therefore you have permission to come so prayer is permission second they Prayer is confidence, as in our passage of Scripture. Confidence to enter his presence because Jesus broke open the veil by his death. It It is to come to the mercy seat at any time, in any posture, in any place. And it is also that you don't have to wonder if God hears. You don't have to wonder if God's there. You don't have to wonder whether you have the right to pray. You don't have to wonder whether God is stooping down and listening to you. Because many times when the Old Testament passages of Scripture talk about God listening, the Hebrew word means to stoop down. And listen, that God's coming close to hear what you have to say. That's That's really a, a picture of intimacy. That God, I'm no longer an enemy of God. I am a child of God, a friend of God. So, therefore, is God against me? No! He is never against you if you're a believer, ever. He's with you, He's for you, He's listening to your prayer, He's waiting to meet your need. That's why this is so important. We need to come. We need to come, and so therefore, prayer ought to be persistent to come into his presence. So don't stop it. You are never to cease, the Bible says. Even in weaknesses, the weaknesses of our flesh, when we feel empty, when we feel cold, we are to keep coming to persist in prayer as an expression of our complete dependency on God for all aspects of our existence. Persistent flows, actually, from the certainty, from the confidence, from the boldness of our creaturely helplessness and the logical conviction from Scripture that God alone can help me. That's why I love those passages of scriptures like in, in Psalm 73, which says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail. You ever felt like that? My flesh has failed me. My emotions have failed me. My feelings have failed me. My friends have failed me. My family have failed me. My education has failed me. My experience has failed me. My job has failed me. But... God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So I don't have to worry about anything else. That's how I come to God in prayer. Without persistent prayer, we have no offense in the battle against evil. And remember, Christ defeated Satan in death. It tells us that in Hebrews. Everything is done. And yet I have found as a pastor to get people to gather for prayer is the hardest thing. It's the hardest thing to do. It's it's the most discouraging thing for me. See, because if there's no prayer, there's no power. If we are not vigilant, we will be ensnared by temptation, by worldliness, by fleshliness, by satanic influence enemies of our life. See, our defense and our offense is active, persistent, earnest, believing prayer. That's what we ought to do as believers. Regular and continual prayer show where one's priorities are, where their concerns are, where their passions are. See, I implore you, remember prayer is always first and should always be regular always are you praying am I convicted about passages like this yes because I struggle with prayer myself I have this great privilege before me to come into God's presence, talking. Meeting with my God, walking with my God, pouring out my heart to my Lord, and I don't take advantage of it. And I think other things are more important. I think I have all these priorities in my life. And the most important priority I neglect. And by the time you get to it, you're so tired to fall asleep when you decide to pray. That's not prayer. That's having your priorities all screwed up. See, if the church doesn't get this priority corrected, that's a bad thing. That's a real bad thing. Sinful interruptions, satanic attempts to distract your mind, Good things derail your prayers, sports and work and hobbies and studies and family and school and studies and all those things, all 100,000 excuses. So, Pastor, if you had your prayer meeting on a different night, I'd come. You know what? If we switched it to another night, it'd be the same thing. If we switched it to a different time, different place where you can come, well, there would always be excuses because it's talking about in Hebrews corporate prayer mainly because if you look in verse 25 not forsaking our assembly see we forget yes individual prayer but corporate prayer the church the body meeting together to seek God out i have to we have to rethink how we do prayer in our church i know other things have to be done but if prayer's not done prayer must be the priority of everything else praying for our our sunday school praying for the preaching praying for other individuals who are having struggles in their life praying before god in them we can we can help them in all kinds of way but if we haven't prayed about it where is the power behind that when god says coming to my presence with your needs and we don't we don't do it Prayer must be offered in faith that God is, and He is a a hearer and an answerer of prayer, and that He will fulfill His word, where He says, "Ask and you shall receive; knock and it shall be open to you." So, really, here is the practice that we are to have: a continuous inner channel of communication with God. And prayer is worship to the Lord in which He deserves our adoration coupled with a thankful heart. See, prayer means we remain keenly aware of our constant need of Jesus Christ, our High Priest. Where, remember back in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 says, Therefore, since we have a great High Priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Jesus understands our deepest needs. See, we also need to come with humility, where James tells us, but he gives greater grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If you are not praying, it means you are not humble. And you do not need help. You ever feel that way? That, I don't need any help. I'm taking care of things pretty good down here, Lord. I don't really need any help. That's not true. You realize we have spiritual wickedness against us? We need help every second of every day before God. we need mercy and forgiveness like chapter 4 of Hebrews says therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy God's pity on us that we need help and strength chapter 4 of Hebrews verse 16 and find grace and help in time of need brethren we are battling forces greater than ourselves so therefore we we need to be praying. It's our primary duty as believers. This is the first point of practice after all that doctrine. Confidence to come before the Lord in prayer. It has to mean something. Do we, do we place that priority on it? I don't think so. I haven't seen that in the practice uh, of the people of God. See, n- not many would deny that prayer is important. If I said to any one of you, do you think prayer is important? Oh, yeah, it's very important. But practically, many have really been atheists when it comes to prayer. See, we, we think that we should do it, but we don't seek God's face on normal days for everything. And believe me, I'm preaching to myself too. I'm not just preaching to you. See, when Jesus turned over the tables of the money changers in the temple, you remember that passage of Scripture in Luke? This is what he says. He called the place where God's people met together, what did he call it? He called it the place of prayer. That's what he called it. Because prayer is the most important holy duty of the gathered assembly. That's what he says. So to them is written, and my house shall be a house of prayer. But you made it into a den of robbers. So we can take a place where people, God's people are supposed to gather and make it something other than what God intended it to be. See, we can do a lot of things as a church, but if we don't pray, we're in trouble. Because the life, the power, and the glory of the church is prayer. It shows that we're all together depending on our God. We know we can't do it without Him. We need this spiritual strength, that the life of its members is dependent on prayer and the presence of God is secured and retained by prayer. That the very place in which we meet together is actually set apart when we pray. It's sanctified when we pray. Without it, the church is lifeless and powerful list without it even the building itself is nothing more than a structure but with prayer with prayer in the house of God and the house of God is anywhere people gather together to meet does not just it doesn't mean a structure but there are structures where God's people have come to meet and they do meet today and so therefore with prayer that the house of God might, it might lack everything else, but with prayer it lacks nothing. It has all the beauty that you could ever imagine when people come to pray there. Without prayer, the church is like a body without spirit. It is dead. It's, it's, in, it's an inanimate thing. A church with prayer in it has God in it. Has a bunch of people in it who actually believe what the Bible Bible teaches and are actually doing what it says. So the first point of doing is to come confidently into the presence of God to pray together. And some of the things that are happening in your life and some of the things that have happened in my life have been a result of not praying because I try to do it myself. Or I try to get other people to help me to do something that God, and I never brought it before the Lord. So The Lord allows us to do things like that, and then we get ourselves tied in all kinds of knots. We get all emotional. You know, everything's breaking down around us, and we wonder, what's going on? You haven't even prayed about it. You haven't shared the prayer with your brethren about it. You haven't met together and prayed about it to bring your prayers and intercessions before the Lord. You haven't done that. See, when prayer is set aside, God is outlawed. When prayer becomes an unfamiliar exercise, then God himself is a stranger in that place. that 's what prayer is about it 's about talking to God it 's about a bunch of people who know why they can come into the presence like this before God any anytime in any place, anywhere they know that, and they 're filled with adoration to the Lord and praise to the lord they 're filled with things to talk about with the lord they 're filled with all those things so as god 's house becomes is already a house of prayer, but when it becomes a house of prayer, the divine intention is that people should leave their homes to go to meet him in his house with his gathered people. So that the the building itself is set apart for prayer, especially as God has made special promise to meet his people there. He's delighted when we meet together. He is filled with joy when we meet together for prayer. So it's our duty to go there. It should be your desire to want to go there. Prayer should be the chief attraction for all spiritually minded churchgoers. Ian Bounds said that. I think this is one thing we must work on as a church body. And no one's exempt. No one has an excuse higher than this priority. Do they? Do you? You have to tell God about that. I can't help you on that one. But I think we need to come together, really. We have to find ways to come together. On a regular basis, all the time and pray, right? And we have to do it this coming year, we have to have a plan to do it so everybody is involved. I know we have people that live distance away. I know we have people uh, things like that, so but there's a way to do it, right? We have to figure that out. all right? So I need your help on that, all right, because we're going to do this together. we're going to pr- we're going to be a praying church, all right. I need your prayers. And I feel that, too, when maybe we haven't prayed about something that we should have. I feel very nervous about that. You know what I mean? And I should be. I don't want to do that. I want to be so prayed up and overflowing in this area where we're just boldly doing things because we know God's going to bless it already. You know? Praying for people's salvation together. Yeah, it's on your mind. All this person's on my mind all the time. We've been praying about it as a church. This person lord save this person give give me an opportunity somebody in the opportunity the church to give the gospel to that person and so that's what i believe that uh we ought to be doing and so that is the first point of practice after we an understood and and understand our conversion to christ and what he's done for us that we have a great gift a great privilege and we often don't use it as we should And we need to now change that, put our priorities back in order, and then start implementing this practice of our faith to come confidently, boldly, assuredly into the presence of God as a body. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the word of God. Lord, forgive us of the sin of not being prayerful as a body. Forgive us, Lord, of the sin of not being prayerful as individuals in your body. Lord, I pray that whatever anyone is going through today in their life, including myself, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to re examine the area of prayer especially as to where it is in our priorities and I pray that we would put it where it ought to be first and as we do that Lord help us to adjust our schedules and our calendars to reflect that priority because Lord you know our heart you know the motives of our heart you know our weaknesses and our tendencies to to go in directions that we ought not to go in, Lord, please enable us, Lord, to be able to now prioritize prayer, especially corporate prayer, and implement it this year and bring all our needs and intercessions and petitions before you, Lord. And I pray we will learn to enjoy coming before you. We will learn to put all all other things aside to come before you. And Lord, I pray that we would see great things happen that we know only you could do because we're seeking you out and we're praying humbly before your face because we know our great need and we need to be in your presence, Lord. That's why we're saved, to be in your presence. Oh, Lord, that's going to be our future, We know, Lord, that's the greatest thing, the greatest deed we have. So help us, Lord. Give us wisdom as a body to be able to put this first major point of practice uh, into being and it be a regular part of our routine. We thank you, Lord, for challenging us and rebuking us in this way. Help us, Lord, now to do what you say. In Christ I pray. Amen. Let's